Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. blood sugar management today. This is a really important topic for anyone with PCOS because the foundation of hormone balance is blood sugar balance. And so even if you do not have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, even if you're someone whose blood sugar levels are looking good and your doctor said there's no concern, I still want you listening to today's episode because my guest is wonderful and she's going to share a lot of strategies that are going to be helpful for you even if you don't currently have an issue with blood sugar control. This is something that everyone should be knowledgeable and educated about. And my guest today is, again, a certified diabetes educator, and she's amazing. And so I was really looking forward to this conversation, and Christy definitely delivered. So let's give her a formal introduction. My guest is Christy Messerly. She is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist. Christy is a health at every size practitioner, which means that she believes clients can manage their diabetes and health without focusing on weight loss. Christy feels that patients with diabetes are often misguided when it comes to managing blood sugar, and they feel that restriction is their only option. Now, this is, of course, very similar to the experience patients with PCOS go through. And so today, Christy and I chat about this as well as some practical strategies to manage insulin resistance, balance blood sugar, reduce the anxiety around food and carbohydrates specifically, and navigate the holiday season, which believe it or not, is coming up with less stress, more balance, and of course, pleasure from food. So let's get into my conversation with Christy Messerly. Hey, Christy, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So for my listeners who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Tell everyone who you are, what you do, who you help, all of that. Yes. So my name is Christy. I'm a dietitian and I am a certified diabetes care and education specialist. I primarily help people living with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, also some insulin resistance and PCOS. Okay, great. So yeah, definitely insulin resistance is a huge factor with PCOS. And we're going to talk about that And also, you know, just like with blood sugar management being a major factor in hormone balance. So all of these things are interrelated. Mm -hmm. And today I want to talk about managing blood sugar, of course, but also going into the holiday. Maybe you can share a little bit of mindset tips for people who are dealing with prediabetes and diabetes and want to navigate the season with all the treats and sugar and everything that we're surrounded by a little bit more healthfully, but still enjoying themselves. Because I know you and I are definitely on the same page when it comes to like mindset around nutrition and not, you know, being too strict or too all or nothing. So I'm looking forward to dive into that. But before we do that, I want to talk about the biggest myths that you see with blood sugar management, because busting myths is something that I love doing, especially... (laughs) Especially when it comes to carbs, which I'm sure is one of the biggest ones. So tell us a little bit about what you see with your clients as far as misconceptions. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, if I had to pinpoint a myth, it would 100% be carbs, which I know you see a lot of with PCOS. Oh, you can't have carbs. Eliminate them. 
that is one that I, I probably hear every single day, multiple times a day. And it really doesn't serve anybody. I mean, you know, I have people coming to me all the time feeling like they can't eat bananas, rice, pasta. I mean, like whatever, what, you know, when we're talking carbs, we're not just talking like candies and things like that. We're also talking about very fiber rich filled carbohydrates as well. I would have to say that that's probably the biggest myth that I hear. And we know that when we restrict carbohydrates or feel like we can't have them, we end up craving them and wanting them more which can send our blood sugars kind of on this roller coaster. And then people blame the carbohydrates for that roller coaster. But really, if we get to the root cause of that, it's likely the restriction or the feeling of restriction around the carbohydrates that ends up leading to overeating them and then a high blood sugar. Yeah. So definitely like setting yourself up for those binges or impulsive eating. And usually when people, you know, it's human nature. I always tell clients like, if you restrict something and now this becomes your most desired food, that's normal. Like when you restrict something, you want more of it. That's human nature. And so with prediabetes and diabetes and PCOS all being chronic conditions, we need to find the things that we can do long-term and cutting out carbs, you know, everyone loves carbs, right? So it's definitely not something that most people could stick with. How do you feel about keto or dirty keto or all of those types of things where people modify? Yeah. I feel like anything that's, that tells you, you can't eat something is like a no for me. I mean, I, I mean, I believe in autonomy too. You know, people are like, well, I want to do this. I'm like, okay, I wouldn't be the coach for you. I wouldn't be the dietitian for you. Probably. I definitely try and take more of an approach of like an all foods fit and how can we make them fit in a way that works best for you. And that does include looking at portions and things like that, as we know. But I mean, more and more research comes out about keto leading to high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So, and most people are on keto to lose weight. And if that weight loss now comes with high cholesterol, high blood pressure. I wouldn't necessarily be the dietitian for you or the coach for you if you were looking at kind of a more restrictive mindset. There's a lot of research that has come out about keto leading to high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that. So people get on keto to lose weight or they think it's going to lower their blood sugars in the long term. And we do know that you see initial weight loss with keto, right? Usually unsustainable. I have yet to know someone who's been on keto that it has sustained weight loss, but when you're cutting out a whole food group, we have to talk about what that includes and what you're missing now from that food group. And then what happens when you're cutting that food group out? So people are going on keto and then they're having now high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and now they have all these other issues that they have to tackle. And likely because they're cutting out carbohydrates, which includes fiber-rich carbohydrates, which are both good for our cholesterol and good for our blood pressure and good for our blood sugar. So I'm not a proponent of anything that you're cutting out a whole food group. (laughs) Okay. I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you recommend people go about incorporating carbohydrates like in a more balanced way throughout the day? What what are some of the principles that you teach? I mean, one that we see kind of across um, Instagram is just the balance, right? Including protein, fat, and fiber at your meals along with the carbohydrate, I think is really important. We know that when you're including those blood sugar stabilizing nutrients that we're seeing that the blood sugar spike a lot less, you're more satisfied by those meals. I mean, a great example that I use is like, I love cold cereal. I think cold cereal is like the MVP of foods. But if I eat cold cereal with some milk, I'm going to be hungry very shortly after that cold cereal. 
And so instead of having pulled cereal by itself, that's going to lead to a pretty big increase in my blood sugars, but also I'm just going to be hungry. There's a way to make that cold cereal meal a lot more balanced with protein, fat, and fiber. That's going to hold me over to my next meal and also not send my blood sugars in this roller coaster either. That would be one principle that I teach. I also talk a lot about non-food related things that help our blood sugars as well. And that includes, you know, eating carbohydrates earlier in the day versus way later in the day. I mean, still eating carbs later in the day, but the majority of our food being eaten while the sun is up (laughs) versus eating way later in the day, which if we're restricting our foods during the day, we will be hungry and be eating the majority of our calories and our food later in the day, which can also send our blood sugars awry. I also love talking about like the foods that we all love, like pizza that's pretty high in carbohydrates, how to balance that. And if you are having a higher carbohydrate meal, there are things you can do such as like going on a walk prior to the meal and after, or even a longer walk after the meal to help really balance that out without having to cut out that food and feeling like you can't have it. Yeah. I love using non-food related strategies because, you know, those are generally easier to incorporate. And, you know, if someone feels that changing the food is something they're not quite ready for, or maybe they are in a process of doing it, but it's not where it should be, they can totally start with those other things like the movement, the sleep, the stress management, the timing of the meals and see great results, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree that those are a little bit easier to to start to incorporate because most of the way that we eat, I feel is like really embedded in us, you know, and like, yes, hard to start to change those things and look at food in a different way. And when you have a chronic illness or chronic disease, such as diabetes, PCOS, you're almost forced to, and you're forced to tackle like all these things that can be really hard. And so I do think that non-food related things are easier to kind of tackle right at the beginning versus changing things, something that's really embedded in us, such as like the way we eat, how we eat, you know, like that. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many emotions also tied in with food, whereas most people don't feel as emotional about their sleep schedule, right? You know, like you could probably change that a little bit more easily. So totally agree on that. You mentioned cold cereal. So I want to talk a little bit about breakfast and morning sugar specifically. This is one of the things that I've seen to be very challenging for women and for people in general to manage where morning sugars are high. Now, I know you did a masterclass on this recently, so I'd love to get some of your tips for anyone listening who's struggling with higher blood sugar levels in the morning where the rest of the day could be okay. Yes. Yeah. I see that very often. And those morning blood sugars are so frustrating. And I've seen it with clients like literally across the board. So just validating that that is a very real thing. And we all see it with our clients. When we did the masterclass, a few things came to light that I think is really helpful for people to implement. But at the end of the day, I also think working with someone on this can be really useful because everyone's situation is different. Everyone's blood sugars are different. Everyone's lifestyles are different. But a couple of tips that Bailey and I, who I did the masterclass with, really felt like our clients benefit from includes getting enough sleep, <laughs> making sure that you're not jipping yourself of you know only getting five, four hours of sleep a night and hoping for good blood sugars in the mornings because you know our stress response is a lot higher when our sleep level is not where it needs to be. Getting exercise in after the last meal of the day. So if you eat dinner, going on a walk, even just walking around your house, doing like laundry, just kind of moving your body versus like eating and then like sitting on the couch, watching TV, hopping on a treadmill, taking your dogs out for a walk, taking your kids to the park, like kind of doing something that's a little bit more active after dinner can really help with those morning sugars. 
also what you do during the day, right? Like if you are not eating enough carbs during the day and really overeating your carbs at night, you're going to have a high blood sugar. So that's why eating carbs consistently throughout the day and not saving them for way later in the day is really important. Do you find that using the movement as opposed to modifying what you eat is more effective? It really depends on the person and like what they're eating at night. I mean, because some people don't really need to change much about what they eat, but maybe they are really inactive during the day. And so when they don't really change what they're eating, but they incorporate more activity, they do see a huge decrease in their sugars in the morning. I think it would really depend on like what that nighttime routine looks like for people. Like when you get home from work, what does that look like the rest of the night? Because that can Mm -hmm. really be dependent on what your sugars do the next morning. Right. Okay. That's good to know. What about a bedtime snack? I know a lot of people do need that, especially if they eat on the earlier side. What do you recommend for that? I have seen amazing results with people that have a nighttime snack. It also depends on the medication you're on. I mean, if you're on insulin, a nighttime snack can be really useful. If you're eating dinner at 5 p.m. and you're not eating till nine the next morning, yeah, a nighttime snack can be super beneficial and almost like necessary probably. So I think it also depends on the medication you're on and how early you eat dinner. So, you know, if you're eating dinner at 7, 7.30 and going to bed at 9, 9.30, a nighttime snack might not be super feasible for you. You might not even be hungry at that time. And I don't think we should eat when we're not hungry. No one wants to do that. So again, like, I wish it was like a one size fits all like, yes, do this every time and you'll see better blood sugars. But it really depends on what time you eat dinner, how long you're going without eating until you eat breakfast the next day, what medications you're on, what your blood sugars are at night. Like, what are you going to bed with and what are you waking up with? All of those things can play a factor into like if a snack would be beneficial or not. Okay. But you don't feel necessarily that, you know, with sugar production at night, when someone's fasting, where things can get a little bit higher, and maybe that's what's contributing to the morning sugars being elevated. I do think that from what I've seen, like if I have clients who are eating dinner at like five or six, and they're not going to bed till like 10 and say they don't eat breakfast till nine the next morning. And they're So technically they're going like 15, 16 hours without eating. We know that our liver will create sugar in need when we're not eating any. And so those clients, I think, have benefited greatly from having a nighttime snack. And usually they're hungry. I think that people that aren't eating past six or past seven is because they feel like they can't. And that is hurting their blood sugars in the long term. So I do feel that eating a nighttime snack, especially if you're eating dinner early, can really help kind of tell your liver like, hey, you don't need to do this because I'm consuming some carbohydrate with some protein. So I don't need you to create sugar and put it into my bloodstream. So I do Mm -hmm. think that's useful. What are some of your clients' favorite nighttime snacks? Most of my clients really like chocolate. I mean, luckily chocolate can be pretty good for our blood sugars. You know, if we eat it in a certain way and we look for like a darker chocolate, it actually can be really beneficial. So a lot of my clients will do like chocolate with like a protein drink. So they're still, you know, having something sweet that they're really craving, but they're also balancing it because just the chocolate by itself might lead to a higher blood sugar that you don't really want versus like that stability throughout the night. There's also, I mean, like there's some good blood sugar friendly desserts out there that I've noticed like Yasso bars are a little bit Mm -hmm. higher protein. They taste really good. They're delicious. Really like them. And they're a little higher in protein, a little lower in sugar. So they're like a really fun, like nighttime snack that doesn't send your blood sugars on like this, you know, this skyrocket. 
And I also have clients who love like popcorn, like a more savory snack. So popcorn, I mean, one of my favorite snacks that's really easy and blood sugar friendly is like popcorn with nutritional yeast on it. Cause it kind of takes on like a cheesy flavor and that's more of like a savory one. That's awesome to have before bed. Can you tell people who just thought they heard nutritional yeast, but are not sure what that is? So nutritional yeast is... What's the best way to describe it? I always say it's a Parmesan cheese substitute. Yes. I know it sounds weird. I (laughs) know that saying nutritional yeast, people are like, what are you saying? (laughs) Like neither one of these words sounds appealing, but yes. (laughs) But it it is like almost like a, I would say, yeah, it's like a Parmesan cheese. And it's like a flaky, savory... It is a yeast that's harvested off of some tree. I don't know exactly yes. what tree, but it's <laughs> coming it from nature. Yes. yes. And you can it, use it in like a savory dish. Like I've had people put it on and it's high in protein. So it's like, if you want to throw it on vegetables or you want to throw it on something, that's the best way to have it. Yeah. So it's savory. It's kind of like a cheese flavor. It doesn't melt like cheese, but it, it's got a ton of nutrition in it. So, and you can find it at most grocery stores. I would say the best use for it is on popcorn, right? I would say so. Yeah. I've had it on vegetables, which I do like as well. So like popcorn is a carbohydrate. So adding some kind of protein to it, like nutritional yeast is going to make it more blood sugar friendly and still giving you like that savory snack that you're wanting at night. Yeah. Love that. Okay, great. So popcorn, ice cream, chocolate. I think we're on the same page here. Yeah. (laughs) Not cutting any of those foods out or feeling like you can't have any of them because that leads to wanting them even more. Yes, absolutely. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about insulin resistance. A lot of the women listening right now are struggling with insulin resistance, but their blood sugar levels are normal. So Mm -hmm. many women, you know, women with PCOS are four times as likely to develop diabetes, but many of them have insulin resistance for years and years. And I want to talk about the difference, if there is such a difference, and I want to get your opinion on it, between managing insulin resistance and managing diabetes. Where do you see kind of, is there a difference or would you approach it the same way? Wow. I've never been asked that question, but I would say that they should be kind of tackled the same way because insulin resistance is the underlying cause of diabetes. So without tackling the insulin resistance, you really can't manage the diabetes. People, I think, look at them as like two separate things, but really they're not. The more insulin resistant we are, the higher our blood sugars can become or can be. So I would say that, yeah, I mean, I would tackle them the exact same way. I talk a lot about insulin resistance because it's the underlying cause of type 2 diabetes. So you know, if we're not addressing the insulin resistance, you're not really addressing the underlying cause of diabetes. So you would approach it with the same type of nutrition, movement, same strategies. And- yeah, that also makes it more doable for people. You know, I think people when they have PCOS, diabetes, I mean, even like high cholesterol and blood pressure, like a lot of the recommendations are actually pretty similar, which I think if people could view it like that, it makes it a lot less overwhelming and a lot less like like targeted. You know, I think mm-hmm. people feel targeted. Like I have diabetes and now I have to do A, B, C, and D. And so-and-so over here doesn't have to do any of that. But really the way that I coach people is kind of what we all should be doing. I mean, you know, if we're telling people like increase your fiber, eat more fruits and vegetables, that's kind of generally speaking, we all should be doing that. Now, when you have like insulin resistance, PCOS, diabetes, it can be a little bit more challenging and the consistency has to be there because you you see it in your numbers and your blood sugar numbers. But the the recommendations are really similar kind of across the board. Okay. Okay, great. So speaking of numbers, can you share a little bit about the tests that you recommend people get mm-hmm. in order to either see how their insulin resistance is, what the degree of it is, 
and then monitoring blood sugars and the trends with that? Yeah. So one thing that you can ask for to see kind of like, I guess, quote unquote, how insulin resistant you are would be like your fasting insulin levels. And just to note that your doctor usually won't just check this, like this might be something that you have to ask for. And so that kind of can tell us like, how much insulin am I producing that's not getting my sugar into the cells, basically, like how much is just kind of sitting in my bloodstream? As far as your numbers go, so an A1C test is also really important. That tells us your average sugar over a three-month time span. That kind of tells us like what's going on globally. Like if we look at each client from a bird's eye view, like what's happening over a three-month time span. And anything above 6.5% is considered in the diabetes range. 5.7 to 6.4 is in the pre-diabetes range. And so oftentimes what I see is that people who have insulin resistance and PCOS can like kind of be in that pre-diabetes range for a very long period of time. And, and sometimes not a long time, right? We see it kind of across the board. And then as far as when we're just checking our numbers, like whether you have a continuous glucose monitor or you're checking your number on your finger on a finger stick, we really want those numbers. If you have diabetes, your fasting number is 80 to 130 is the goal, less than 180 after your meals. Those are the main goals. I mean, and everyone can be kind of different. If you're someone who has other chronic illnesses, those numbers might vary. If you just have like insulin resistance and diabetes, we might aim for a little bit lower on those targets just to kind of keep your numbers as like a little, little bit on the lower side. Okay. One of the things I see frequently is women being told to check their blood sugars constantly. And I had a client who was told to check her blood sugar every half hour after she ate. And the numbers were high, obviously, right? And she was getting really worried. And so it's always important to me that women understand how the body works, Mm -hmm. what's normal, and what we can expect after meals. And some of those increases in blood sugar are totally normal and to be expected. And your body can actually handle them pretty well on its own. So we don't really need to intervene. But we have to test at the right time. And a lot of women are getting bad advice about this. So can you talk a little bit more about if someone is wearing a continuous glucose monitor or they're doing finger pricks, when is the right time to test after meals? What should women be looking for? My first inclination to say is that if a doctor told someone to check their sugar every 30 minutes, my response to the doctor would be like, would you want to check your sugar every 30 minutes? Like that's wild. Nobody has the time to do that or the bandwidth to like look at that number that many times a day. Second, it's important that we check about two hours after eating. That's a decent amount of time for us to digest our food, get a really accurate number. All of our blood sugars going up after eating a meal is normal. That is a normal metabolic process that social media and some influencers on social media have made like, oh, this is bad. You never want to see these numbers go up. Like actually, no, seeing your number go up after you eat is metabolically normal. How much it goes up is important and how quickly it can stabilize is important. So those are things to look at a lot more than like, what is that number and being like overvigilant with it. I also don't believe that anyone who doesn't have diabetes really needs to be checking their sugar. Um, if they're getting lab work done, like routine lab work. And if you have PCOS or insulin resistance and you have a pretty good care team, like they're going to be testing those things, you know, pretty often. So no need to be checking your sugar and being overvigilant and scared about it. That stress can actually lead to your blood sugars being higher. <laughs> so no need to be doing that at all. Yeah. 
Okay, good. So it sounds like you and I are on the same page as far as kind of micromanaging your blood sugar if you don't have diabetes. I see so many people wearing the continuous glucose monitors and literally checking all day long. Mm -hmm. And first of all, to me, that would be so stressful and lead to kind of an obsession with it, which can't be healthy for really anyone. No. And yeah, there's there's really no need to be checking your sugars throughout the day when you don't have prediabetes or diabetes. And actually, according to the standards of care for the American Diabetes Association, they actually don't even recommend that people with prediabetes be checking their sugars very often. I can kind of disagree with that. If you have prediabetes and you, you know, you're trying to be aware of your numbers and things, I feel that that can be pretty proactive. But if if there's not an indication to do so, I just think that it causes a lot more stress and anxiety than is even necessary. Yeah. And I think now with the apps being connected to the continuous glucose monitors, uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, those are the ones that you wear on your body. It goes behind your arm. It connects to an app and you can literally like scan the device on your arm and it will show you your blood sugar at any given point. And I have some clients who constantly check Mm -hmm. and it's with no context to when they ate or what they're doing. And they're just looking at the numbers and attributing it to the last thing they did or the last thing they ate, where really usually it's not the reason. It's a, There's a lot of factors that go into your blood sugar fluctuations throughout the day. And so it can be misleading too. Yeah. And, and having a continuous glucose monitor and not understanding the trends is probably more detrimental to your health because even with someone who has diabetes, I always educate them on how to read those trends. Because if you're just checking your number, just checking it. Like if I were just to hop on right now and check my finger stick and check what my sugar is doing without any context around that or without any understanding the trends of like what I'm eating throughout the day, how my sleep is, how my stress is, that number truly doesn't mean a ton. You have to understand the trends that are happening. That's what is so great about a continuous glucose monitor is that you can kind of see the trends and make adjustments according to the trends. But if you don't have prediabetes or diabetes... It's just, yeah, there's no indication to be wearing one. Really no indication at all. Okay, I agree. Yeah. How do you feel about things like apple cider vinegar and adding cinnamon and eating your carbs in order? Maybe some of these things you agree with, some of them not so much. Let us know kind of what you think about that. I think that there's some really great tools. I'll just call them tools. For example... Eating your carbs in order is basically like eating your protein, veggie, and then your carb last. Can that tool be useful? Yes. If you have diabetes or prediabetes, it can be useful. Do I think it's something that needs to happen every time you eat, regardless of anything? No. I think if you are one that enjoys like a side salad with your meal and you're starting your meal off with that, that can have a positive effect on your blood sugars. But do I think that you should like live your life based on that? No. What's going to help your blood sugars is not apple cider vinegar, cinnamon, eating things in order. It's the quality of what you're eating and making sure that you're eating enough protein, fat, and fiber at your meals and making sure that you are doing non-food related things to support your blood sugars. I think that we live in a society that loves quick fixes. If we can drink this apple cider vinegar and it's going to help our blood sugars, I'm going to do it, right? But if it were that simple, we'd have it figured out. You know, we wouldn't be having, we would know that, oh, that works across the board. You don't need to do anything else. And that's not what we see. There is some research about apple cider vinegar being a positively affecting our post-meal sugars. But again, if you're 
meal is, if you don't learn how to balance that meal and understand the components of a really balanced meal and one that actually satisfies you, that apple cider vinegar is not going to be super helpful. So again, I think we all can like find tools that work for us. But at the end of the day, understanding exactly what you need to do and how meals should be built for you is far more important than adding apple cider vinegar to your meals or cinnamon. Okay, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So more like to fine tune as opposed to... It's not the the foundation. Like it can't really... Right? So there's the foundation and then there's stuff at the tip of the pyramid that help fine tune. Okay. How do you feel about glycemic index? Is it the same thing? I love this question. And when Bailey and I were on our masterclass, people had a lot of questions about the glycemic index. And I was kind of surprised that it was still being talked about in doctor's offices because I... yeah. I had no, I mean, I had no idea that it was still so prevalent. Like doctors were saying like, follow the glycemic index. I should actually probably make a post on this, but I mean, so basically the glycemic index is putting foods on an index based on how much they can affect your blood sugars. I don't find it super useful. I don't use it obviously because I didn't even know it was still being used by like doctors because again, it kind of categorizes food. For example, bananas are higher on the glycemic index than, I don't know, berries. But in my opinion, that makes people scared to eat them versus, oh, bananas actually have a lot of fiber, tons of nutrients in them. They are a little bit higher in sugar. So how can we balance that without cutting them out? I find that the glycemic index, again, puts foods in this like good and bad category. It makes people scared to eat. Also, the glycemic index is not like you'd have to memorize it to like know where things fall. And so I don't find it as a useful tool because you'd be like, oh, hold on. You're at like a restaurant, you know, you have to like pull it out and like look at where right. something falls to see if like it quote unquote fits for you. So yeah, I don't, I don't use the glycemic index at all, at all. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. There are a lot of nuances to it as well. Like a ripe banana is higher than an unripe banana. Like, Great point. You know, yeah, a lot of people, you know, you would have to keep up with a lot of information with that and And people perseverate on that. I mean, and I don't blame them, you know, like they're like, okay, so I can eat a, I can eat a ripe banana, but I can't eat this banana. Like all of a sudden you're like, you find yourself like spending a lot of time and energy on like a ripe versus not a ripe banana. When like at the end of the day, what would probably be more beneficial for you is how to balance that banana altogether versus like not having it or feeling so anxious around a banana. Like there's a lot of nuances. I would agree to the glycemic index that I just can't on board with. All right. So we're approaching the end of the year with the holidays coming. Give us some tips on navigating the season with the treats, the cookies, the sugar, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that improving your relationship with food would mean that you are allowing yourself those treats throughout the year. So it holds less value when the holidays come up because you're not like, oh my gosh, this is the one time of year that I can eat cookies or whatever, because then you're putting a ton of pressure on yourself to honestly eat as much as you can because you feel like the rest of the year, it's not available to you. So when you have a more solid foundation with like food and how to manage your blood sugars, the holidays don't hold as much value around like food and treats and things like that. I mean, but I know that they are more apparent around the holidays. I mean, even in like my family and in my life, like they're just around a lot more. I think still ensuring around the holidays that you are eating like a solid breakfast, a solid lunch and a solid dinner, like still really keeping the values around eating whole meals, protein, heavy meals. And if you know that you're going to be having some kind of sweet, say you're at the office and you guys are having a Thanksgiving party and you know that there's going to be 
tons of desserts, making sure that you have a really balanced meal and then enjoying like your very favorite dessert at the end of your meal, not eating a dessert just because it's there. Like for me, I do not like pumpkin pie. Like it could be on the table and I will not eat it. I do not like it, but I love like a pumpkin roll. Like, you know, those rolls with like the cream cheese and stuff. So for me, like if pumpkin pie was an option and that was the only option, I would choose to not eat dessert at that function or that event, because I know that pumpkin pie is just not my jam. So I think like picking and choosing through the holidays, like, is this my favorite dessert? Do I love this dessert? Okay. I'm going to make sure that I eat it with like a more balanced meal. Maybe if you're eating more sweets around the holidays, you might up your exercise a little bit. I would agree that I eat more sweets around the holidays too, because they are more readily available. And so I find myself like, okay, I'm going to eat this and I'm going to go on like a 20 minute walk instead of just going and sitting down and not doing anything. So there are things you can do to prepare for the holidays, but also just putting a little less value on sweets in general will kind of take off the pressure that we feel around the holidays with all these things coming up. Yeah. And kind of carrying over some of the habits from the rest of the year as far as blood sugar management. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not having that all or nothing mindset, you know, that, that kills us all. Like, oh, I'm going to have all the desserts because I can't have it the rest of the year. That just creates this cycle of like, oh, I'm going to eat as much as I can and I'm going to have as many desserts as I can. And that's not going to be supportive of your blood sugars no matter what. Yeah. And both things can happen at the same time. I think you can continue with some of the healthier habits and some of the things that work for you year round, but still indulge. Like you said, it's not all or nothing. It's not like this is cookie season and in yeah. January, come January 1 or January 2nd, it's going to be like healthy eating again. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. both things can happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which is why I've never been like a huge proponent of um like New Year's resolutions because I feel I would rather make like mental New Year's resolutions or things that really fill my cup up versus like, oh, I'm gonna start this diet or I'm gonna not eat sweets or I'm gonna do this or that because then come the holidays, you that's what you crave, that's what you want. So I believe that our New Year's resolution should not be like body weight diet focused and more, you know, looking at trying to find something that's sustainable for the rest of your life. And that type, that way of living usually isn't super sustainable. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about recipes that modify ingredients or substitutions like that for treats? You know, I was just talking with one of my clients about this. I feel that if you're one that loves to bake often, I think that some of those substitutions can be awesome. You know, milk and honey nutrition. She has a a diabetes dessert cookbook that I absolutely love. She uses a lot of substitutions in it. I definitely think that that cookbook's for someone who bakes often and might indulge in sweets a little bit more than someone who doesn't bake. But if you're just baking like every once in a while and you're like, oh, this is my grandma's chocolate chip cookie recipe, do I think you need to like add chia seeds and all this stuff? Like, no, I think. I don't feel that that's super necessary. So I think it's really dependent on the person and how much they're indulging in sweets or how much they're baking them, if that would be useful. But we know that sugar is sugar is sugar. If you're using honey in the place of you know, table sugar, it's going to have the same effect on your blood sugar. So instead of spending extra money to modify those ingredients, because some of those ingredients are very expensive compared to just the traditional ingredients... I would focus on the movement around when you are eating those desserts and focus on eating the dessert closer to like a meal versus all by itself. That's going to be way better for your blood sugars than modifying all these ingredients. Yeah, I agree. And I love that you mentioned grandma's recipe, like food in that time of year during this time of year has sentimental value too. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) when we talk about food, I always like to acknowledge that 
food does have like tradition and sentimental value around it. And so when people feel like they can't have certain things, it almost triggers them to think like, oh, my identity is being, you know, it's on the line because I can't have these things that I've always wanted. Or even like culturally, like I have clients who are like, oh, I was told I can't eat rice or tortillas or whatever it is. And that's like culturally who they are that like goes against our grain, right? So that again, is not a sustainable way to live, nor should we have to. And there's no research that supports that we need to be cutting those things out to manage PCOS, diabetes, things like that. Like we can absolutely include it all. When you eat the real thing, quote unquote, you feel more satisfied, not just physically, but like you said, emotionally, mentally, like it's aligned with who you are and the foods that you love and the foods that your family used to eat. And so there's value in that too. We don't need to just look at ingredients or obviously calories or carbs or sugar. We need to look at, is this food going to be satisfying to me during this time of year on multiple levels so I can move on and I don't have to feel resentful also of the process of getting healthier. Yeah, exactly. I love how you said, and then just move on. It's kind of like, I'm going to eat my grandma's recipe of cookies and then you know I'm going to have a cookie or two and then I'm just going to move on with my life. But if you were to eat like, I don't know. They have like diet cookies. I'm not, I can't name one off the top of my head, but if you tried to substitute it for one of those and it didn't satisfy you, you might eat that plus your grandma's cookies too. And all of a sudden your carbohydrate intake is just extremely high because you weren't satisfied at the beginning. Exactly. Totally agree. All right. Great. Christy, we're going to wrap up. I want you to share if you have a resource or anything as far as a guide or something or, you know, a a helpful, valuable resource for my listeners to continue on the journey. I can be found at type2diabetes.nutritionist. That's my Instagram handle. And I actually have like a Mastering Your Diagnosis ebook that goes over kind of everything we talked about today, like how to, like where your numbers should be, how you pair foods and how that's really useful for you. But I also talk a lot about like stress and sleep and why all of those things are important too. It's probably my, like, it's my number one, like guide that I like to give people if they're just like feeling kind of lost, feeling anxious. I have a lot of women who have PCOS who are trying to prevent diabetes. This guide would be great for them. Because again, the the management and the prevention is all pretty similar. So sometimes if you you just have like a go-to guide, you kind of lay some of the stuff out. It makes it a little less scary versus the pamphlet you might get at the doctor's office. Oh, yeah. Do this, don't do this. Or some people don't get a pamphlet at all, but I don't know which is worse. Or the glycemic index talk, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't talk anything about the glycemic index. (laughs) that, That did prompt me and made me feel like I need to make a post on it though. Definitely. I see it all the time. It comes up a lot. Mm hmm. All right. I have four rapid fire questions for you. Christy, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let's do it. Let's start off nice and easy. What's your favorite food? My favorite food probably would be lasagna, but like a homemade lasagna, not like a lasagna. (laughs) Okay. If you weren't a dietitian, what would you be? Mm, I would be like a world traveler and I would like get paid to document like (laughs) everything that I'm doing. And it would be, all of it would be tax deductible because it would just be my job. That sounds amazing. Uh, Take me with you. All right. If you could have dinner with one famous figure, could be alive or dead, who would it be? Mm, I would have to probably say Lady Gaga or Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) 
Might or, both. or both. Yeah. Like I love Lady Gaga and just like her, she's just so genuine and fun. And then Ryan Reynolds, he's just sexy. So I, I wasn't sure who I wanted to go with, but both would be even better. I'm just watching this show about him purchasing this football club in England. Did you see mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Uh, he purchased a soccer club. I think it's Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good one. It's on Hulu. Ooh, I'll have to watch it. All right. What is one healthy habit you think is totally underrated, not talked about enough? Taking care of our mental health. I okay. think it's not talked about enough. And yeah, I just, I feel like there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think that we should be taking care of our mental health before our physical health, to be honest. And I think that they go hand in hand. Totally agree. And today that we're recording it just happens to be World Mental Health Day. So yes, yes. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, Christy, this was fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll link to everything where to find you and the resource that you mentioned in the show notes. Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you.